Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 72 of Season 5 of Movie Around Minutes, the daily podcast where we yippee our way through the 1990 Bruce Willis action film Die Hard 2 Die Harder, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Todd Levenow of Forgotten Filmcast. Welcome back, Todd. Thank you. Great to be back. Episode 72 begins with FM1 continuing to fly in the blind and ends with Stuart cursing. So basically, we ended things yesterday with Esperanza taking over control of FM1, telling us and the now dead pilot that, you know, he, he knows how to fly the plane. Now we just see the plane uh, floating in space or floating in the air, you know, wobbling back and forth a little bit, stuff like that. We see the storm outside also. And then the shot changes and we were back to Stuart. And Stuart is getting a little bit more agitated as things go by. And he goes, Fartcher Micro 1. Come in, please. And Esperanza then doesn't respond, but we're back in a shot in the cockpit itself. And we see a hand reaching under the, I guess you can call it the dashboard, and then pulls yeah. out pulls out a walkie-talkie and punches in the code. Now, my comment about this is this is such a complicated plan to set in into place because they have to somehow get this information to Esperanza that they're going to be putting a walkie-talkie in the plane underneath, you know, the dashboard, and that you have to remember mm -hmm. this is the code. You know, the the code is I don't know one two three four five. Uh, who knows? But he he needs to know what the code is. Just like my luggage. That's right. Thank you, <laughs> President Screw. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's the point. It's it's. You know, we, we already have talked about the fact in the past that this whole plan, you know, they didn't have that much time to put this plan together. You know, I doubt that they said like two months beforehand, okay, this is the plan on on uh, December uh, 22nd or whatever day this is. You know, we're, we're going to fly Esperanza to, from Valverde to, to America, and it's going to land on you know, at Dulles Airport. And I mean, this was, this is, I guess, a, a secret, you know, this is top secret information. So you know, got, it only had to be an inside man of some sort. Correct. Which, which we never find. We never find out who the inside man is, but again, there has to be somebody who's delivering information from Stuart to uh, Esperanza. So that Esperanza knows that this is what's going to happen. That Esperanza, your job is to make sure that you kill whatever guards are on the plane. Like, also, how did they know there was only going to be one guard? If you would have had you no know, more than one right. guard, it might have been a lot more complicated. You know, there, there's 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 all these elements of the plan that that they put together in the movie, which work within you know the the realm of what we see here. But the the issue is basically, you know, how did they put this all together? You know, how did they get all this the you know this air traffic control equipment in such a short period of time also. It's not like they can send out send out a regular order and go to Office Depot and say, you know, I need, uh, or Radio Shack, <laughs> this is what I need to order. You know, it's a special order. You need to figure out how to get it. And usually you see this in movies and stuff like that. You know, when, when a top secret plan is, is about to be enacted, you don't have that much time before it, it takes place. You know, so they just have a few days. Right. So, well, and so I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Thinking, That's what it comes down to. 
yeah, but I was also thinking like, all right, clearly there's an inside man. If uh, if he's got the ability to stash a walkie-talkie under the dashboard, then how come he doesn't have the ability to plant something more uh, lethal on Esperanza to aid in him, you know, escaping things? I mean, like... Uh, or like a key for his chain? Like I said... <laughs> yeah, or or even like when... Again, it had been a long time since I had seen Die Hard 2 before rewatching a few days ago for this podcast. And when he took the cigar out of his pocket to smoke it a few scenes ago, I was like, I'm trying to remember, does the cigar like explode or does it shoot something? I, I was looking for some kind of a fancy gadget to take out the the guard with the cigar, you know, or something like that. I think you're thinking of James Bond a little too much here. I am. I am. I was thinking in James Bond mode there, but, but still, if you can get a walkie talkie on board, can't you stash some other equipment on Esperanza? I, I, I agree. You know, you'd think that they would be able to do something here, but, uh, you know, I guess, I guess they, they, they didn't want to do too much. They just wanted to do the bare minimum. Yep. So I don't know. But I mean, it still works, <laughs> you know, even though, again, if you think about it from what you said, okay, so there's an inside man. So the inside man is able to do this. And the inside man said to Esperanza, the code is one, two, three, four, five, you know, and that's it, you know, and then, you know, it also makes you wonder that, you know, Esperanza knows that he should be using the walkie talkie so that no one else can hear what he's talking, what he's saying, mm -hmm. You know, which which is also interesting. So he picks it up and he very quickly punches in the code with like one finger. I think he uses his thumb, if I remember correctly, just to punch in the code. And then uh, he starts calling for, for help and he calls twice. He goes, Eagle Nest, this is Falcon. Mayday, Eagle Nest, this is Falcon. Mayday. And again, thinking so, in James Bond mode, every time I hear Mayday, I think Grace Jones's character in A View to a Kill. That's right. That's right. The View to a Kill is one of my favorite James Bond movies. I, it's, 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 oh, it's, you've got it's a strong so silly. <laughs> it's so silly, but it's just so much fun. <laughs> I rewatched that a few years ago because, you know, we were going through all the James Bond films on the Lambcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, each of us kind of took it in chunks. So, you know, I think, you know, Richard and Jay might have been the only ones that, you know, did all the films. But um, the cycle yeah. that I ended up with was the last two Roger Moores and the first two Timothy Daltons. So I ended up with Octopussy, A View to a Kill, Living Daylight, Some License to Kill. and Which we um, just mentioned two of them today and yesterday. So there you go. You know. And <laughs> A View to a Kill... I, I got some flack on it, you know, sitting there. I was like, all right, I admit it's not a great James Bond film, but it's more entertaining than I remembered it being. And I was like, and it's better than Octopussy. So <laughs> Octopussy to me is kind of the bottom of the barrel on James Bond. Um, yeah, James I mean, Bond I, I, clown outfit. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but for me, I mean, you, you and I are around the same age, so you know, I saw both of those in the theater and I just had a blast seeing them. I mean, Octopussy came out, I was nine and View to a Kill, I was 11. And, you know, for me, those were just great. I, I didn't get all the jokes at the time because, you know, the, yeah. the, the jokes of innuendo, you only get when you're a little bit older with James Bond, but still, you know, so for me, View to a Kill has always still been my favorite. It's for sure my favorite Roger Moore 
And it, you know, in some ways it's my favorite James Bond movie because it's just so much fun. Uh, because of the, it's, you know, the, the, is, the fact I mean, that it's goofy. It's it, goofy the fact fun, it starts yeah. off, it starts off with with the Beach Boys, you know, while he's while he's skiing. <laughs> hey, come on! I like the fire engine chase in a view to yes. a kill. Fire mm-hmm. engine and chase is on, good. Tanya, Tanya Roberts, you can't you can't go wrong with Tanya Roberts and and, uh, and well, Grace Jones. <laughs> I I don't know. I think you can go wrong with Tanya Roberts. I mean, she's attractive, yes, but as far as <laughs> act actresses she's not a very good actress yeah well she was she, she it was because of sheena that uh, wait oh no sheena came out afterwards i think i think or maybe sheena came out in the she, no, sheena, no sheena, 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 sheena was because she sheena was 84 because it's you know about the only press that it got because the movie bombed so hard was that it was released the week after Red Dawn, I think. So Red Dawn, of course, was the first PG-13. Sheena was released the week after with a PG rating. And it's got full-on nudity. I mean, Tanya Roberts is there topless in an extended scene in that movie. And people were like, wait a second, you've given Wolverine's PG-13, but you're given, you know, full-on nudity a PG. And it's because Sheena got its it's PG rating before the PG 13 was a thing. So it was still going by the old rating system. Um, but yeah, no, I remember, I mean, I'm 84 okay, is my favorite fair. movie year. So yeah, I no, always I remember that. the movies of 84. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Sheena is, uh, uh, I, I gotta rewatch that even though, even though it's really bad, but I got, I gotta rewatch it one of these days, you know, may, maybe tomorrow. We'll see. <laughs> There's, there is still a goofy charm to it. I will say that. I mean, it's not a very good movie, but it's um, there is something that's kind of just entertainingly goofy about it. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. So, you know, he, he you know, we, we go back to the code names. You know, at the very beginning, we had someone say, this is Buckwheat. The clubhouse is open. Right. And now they say, okay, Eagle Nest and Falcon. So first of all, the, the idea of Falcon you know that that's where the the phrase of the movie, you know, yippee ki Mr. Falcon comes from. You know, with the mm-hmm. TV versions of this movie, because there is a Mr. Falcon here, uh, or at least theoretically, is a Mr. Falcon. But let, let's go back with Eagle's Nest. What do you think of when you when you think of the the when you hear the term Eagle's Nest? Well, I guess first thing I would think of it would be an actual Eagle's Nest. Um, that's interesting because for me, it's not. I mean, like our <laughs> state. See. I mean, we we get updates and stuff on our news here in Denver fairly regularly because a couple of our state parks have these eagle sanctuaries and such. And so there's always news coverage about, oh, there's two eggs in the nest this season or, you know, whatever. And unfortunately, we've had some incidents the last couple of years where just natural events, weather, you know, like the, you know, the nest has been knocked down. And so there's no eaglets that year and things like that so um so yeah i guess that's where my brain goes first but that part of that is just because you know there's there's just this this focus on the eagle population here in colorado okay all right that's fair so for me my mind goes completely elsewhere and it, it goes to world war ii do you know any world war ii references to the eagle's nest oh not coming to mind. Okay, so the Eagle's Nest was actually uh, Hitler's uh, uh, bunker complex in uh, Ad- oh, Adlerhorst. Okay. 
which uh, so I'm a very big fan of uh, Band of Brothers. So Band of Brothers, they were actually among the the uh, the you know the companies of soldiers that that were that were sent there to go take it over, and you know by the time they were sent there, there everyone had already fled. But it was known as the Eagle's Nest. So it 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 was actually okay. a castle that the Nazis took over in 1939, and they adapted it, designing military grade infrastructure, which uh, was disguised and adapted to fit in with its surroundings. So the complex has had seven different buildings that they really they they built up, built up around it. Uh, part of the time it was it was uh, Hermann Göring's uh, headquarters during the Battle of Britain, and between December forty four and January forty five, it was Hitler's uh, headquarters uh, during the uh, Ardennes uh, Forest Offensive. And then the the uh, U.S. Army forces. Including uh, Easy Company, of uh, you know of Band of Brothers, they they, they captured it on March thirtieth, nineteen forty five, and they actually used it afterwards for what was known as Operation Paperclip, which was a British American detention center that they they uh, took many German uh, non military prisoners of war, including uh, key industrialists, scientists, and ec economists. Including uh, Ferdinand Porsche, I.G. Farben, and uh, Werner, von, Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun, who von Braun, is the yeah. you know the the main scientist that they used for the space program. Uh, mm -hmm. So they they uh, interrogated you know these people there. Uh, yeah. So then uh, Falcon. So the, a, a falcon is obviously a uh, a bird of prey, and there are over forty different. We have lots of them out here. Really? <laughs> my kids' school, my kids' school was the falcons. Because um, they were real falcons, and, yeah. or because they just like the name. Well, I mean, you know, they, a lot of the schools try to choose for their mascot names that are somehow regionally significant, and falcons are are certainly something we see around here in Colorado. As a matter of fact, there are several that um, I see, you know, regularly, like on my way to work, they perch on light poles uh, uh, hanging over the street on my way to work, uh, what, looking for uh, something small to scurry by and, and grab oh, wow. for breakfast. Interesting. So you, you better be careful they don't try and grab you for breakfast. I don't think they will, but you know, I, I've certainly had a few, like, I mean, I've had occasions where I found like half of a rabbit in my yard and most likely it's something that a falcon dropped as it was flying overhead. <laughs> yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> so there are f over 40 species of falcons and they you can you can find them on on six of the seven continents. I'm sure you can guess which continent you can't find them on. Uh see uh that's, Antarctica. That's <laughs> Very good. So what? Okay, so they have all these different uh, falconeers clubs. Okay, so in in England they have the oldest falconeer club, which was founded in 1927. Then in North America they have the North American Falconeers Association, which was founded in 1961, and that's for you know falconeers in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And then you have the International Association for Falconry and Conserv Conservation of Birds of Prey, 
which was founded in 1968 and has 156 falconry clubs that are part of it from 87 different countries worldwide. And there are a total of 75,000 members you know, of, of falconeers. I didn't think that falconeering was that popular that you'd have 75,000 falconeers around the world. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I mean, I suppose it varies in different places, but like, again, you know, I know that um, we have a lot of different birds of prey here in Colorado. And like, if you go like here in the summer months to uh, community events, you know, where they have, um, you know, different regional festivals and stuff. Like I remember just the first one coming to mind here last summer, we went and attended, they do a celebration in golden Colorado called Buffalo bill days. And we were walking around there and there was a booth set up by one of the local falconry organizations. And they had several of their birds of prey that they were displaying and, and, you know, teaching people about and such. So um, it's something that we see regularly when we go to different community events. Very cool. How far back do you think uh, falconry goes? When, when do you think people, they, they, you know, the first accounts of people, you know, do uh, practicing falconry, how far back do you think it goes? I don't know, but, you know, you always see in some of those old movies where you have like, you know, the it's medieval times and it's the the, the kings and the knights and, and all that stuff. A lot of times you see a guy that's that's carrying a bird around all the time. So based on movies, it goes back. Pretty it goes far, back even but further than that, because it goes the, in Mesopotamia. They they have accounts of of people practicing falconry back to 2000 B.C. The falcon was also the symbolic bird of the ancient Mongol tribes. And uh, as you said, the falconry was a popular sport and status symbol among the nobles of medieval Europe. You know, so people, people like to play falconeer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then, you know, back, back to, 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 to our scene here. So, you know, after, after uh, Esperanza says uh, Eagle's Nest, this is Falcon May Day. So at this point, uh, Stuart is a little shocked that he has to do it through the radio, but he quickly picks it up and responds in the radio and says, go ahead, Falcon. And then we get this really long diatribe by Esperanza, you know, uh, giving a little bit of exposition. I've lost cabin pressure, near zero visibility. I must drop out of this weather and land now on the first accessible runway. Repeat, I've lost cabin pressure, near zero visibility. I must drop out of the storm. I can land, but I must land now on the first outgoing runway. Repeat, I cannot circle around to runway 15. So as this is all being, as we're, we're hearing all of this, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a good uh, 30 seconds, this, this entire exposition that he's giving us. You know, so we we get uh, a shot of you know the the the, the shot out window pane, and then we get a zoom in on the radio, and then we see uh, Marvin in the background. So it tells us also that uh, you know our good friend uh, John McClain is is paying attention to it. Nice rack focus shot, yeah. That's right. And then John, uh, you know, is able to hear all that's going on, and we 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 see Marvin like smirking in the background. And I mean, as Bronza says, you know, he he can't get to runway one five. How does he know where runway one five is? 
I mean, Hal Bryan was on a few weeks ago and he sort of explained it to me that that the number of the runway, from what I understand, is based on, you know, the, the 360 degrees. You know, if you if you take like a circle and that's the direction you're coming from. Mm-hmm. But like, how does he know that he's coming from, you know, 15 degrees or whatever it is? You know, I, I, I know. guess he's a pilot, so he knows these things. I, I don't know. Well, and I know that, I mean... There are like books and things that they will have on on planes, which sounds really old fashioned. Um, and I'm, you know, I could be totally wrong. I'm, you know, not involved in aviation at all. But again, going back to something local, um, there's a company here in Denver that is called Jeppesen, and. What, the way it was told to me that the terminal here at Denver International Airport is called the Jeppesen Terminal, and it's this was a a very important person, I guess, in aviation, where he is the guy that you know he would fly around and he would take notes about where different things were and what different um, you know like things you could look for as you're flying and you're trying to find the you know the airport or the runway out in the middle of nowhere and stuff you know, these little guidebooks, essentially. And my understanding is they still produce this stuff, you know, because, I mean, I guess if there was an emergency or who knows what. So maybe he's getting stuff out of a book. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they hid, they hid a, uh, one of these books under the dashboard also for him to be able to use. Yeah, you know, they can't, yeah. they can't store a knife or a, or a you know, uh, a key for the handcuffs or whatever, but you can have a walkie-talkie and a, a guidebook. That's right. Okay, that that's fair. And and then John turns to Marvin and says, "Hey, Marvin, I'll make you a deal. You show me a shortcut after those runways, and I'll get you a liner for that coat." <laughs> Which is a great line. I've always loved the line. Um, it, it I I think it's sort of a fallacy because it's making it sound like all the runways are all together in a particular place. You know, that John's basically saying that, mm-hmm. you know, like I have to go to the football field and it's there, you know, that type of thing. It's like all the runways are in the same area. Right. You know, so now, maybe runways can be pretty far yeah, apart. Yeah, that's, that's and, my point. And I mean, again, going back to um, my limited knowledge about our situations here in Denver, I know that when they opened Denver International Airport almost 30 years ago, one of the things that they were touting about it was the fact that the runways were farther apart than they were at the old Denver airport or even at, you know, a lot of airports around the country. And the justification for that was that they, because of the, of runways being, you know, close to each other, that's what slows down landings when uh, weather conditions get bad. But with the runways at Denver International Airport being further apart, they could continue to land planes on more runways at the same time, even when the conditions were were worsening. And, um, you know, believe me, having taxied from some of those (laughs) runways at Denver International Airport, it takes a little time (laughs) to get over to the terminal because they are far apart. And did you notice the, the two signs that are on the wall right right between John and Marvin? I did. I was trying to look at the one, the lower one closer because, you know, the, the one that is very clear, of course, is no smoking. Um, but the one underneath it, 
I was like trying to make it out. And the only word I thought I could make out was something about safety. And then there's like some kind of a cartoon drawing, which I couldn't figure out what it was. I was like, it looks like an Eskimo attacking someone or I, I don't know what it was. Okay. So you, you can see it actually quite well at uh, second 51 of the, of, of the, of the minute. So it basically says safety always, always, right? So it's safety A L L ways, and then always A L W A Y S. Okay. And then you see in the picture, it looks like a guy uh, next to a computer or something like that, that that seems to trip over something. That that's what it looks like. I I did a, an exhaustive search on the internet, and I could not find uh, a copy of this this uh, I guess comic. Or whatever. So, yeah, I don't think we ever see John smoking in Marvin's uh, house. So I, I guess he he's following those rules a no. little better. Well, and speaking of things on the wall, I was curious about in the background behind Marvin, you can see that he's got uh, a pinup picture of some sort, and I was like, who's that pinup? And, you know, it looks very old style, like it's something from the fifties or you know, like Betty Grable or something like that. But I was like, oh, I can't, I, you know, there's, I don't think any way to tell who that is or what that picture is from. But it looks like a very old style pinup type. Yeah, which makes sense based on the things that we saw uh, when we first got to this apartment a few weeks ago. And we, we saw you had like a little hula girl and, you know, a bunch of other things that, that we that we started talking about. But yeah, now I can't tell who it is. I mean, maybe it's. It looks maybe like Doris Day. I don't know. It, it, like it has, it looks like maybe someone standing yeah, there with two yeah. dogs next to them. That, that's sort of how it looks. But I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's Jessica Rabbit. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and then we, we, we go back to the plane and we hear, uh, and Esperanza once again says, repeat, I cannot circle around to runway one five. And then the shot changes. He likes that's to right. repeat things. And then, well, he wants to make sure that someone's listening. <laughs> And then the shot yeah. changes, and we're back to Stuart, and Stuart just says, and that, that's how the minute ends. He's not happy with the situation. He realizes he has a very big problem here. So, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about this minute before we get into the, the script? Ah, I think we've covered it. All right. So the, the script has, has a few changes here. Again, nothing major, but it says, uh, Esperanza is at the controls, trying to see through the swirling whirlwind. Cursing, he flies with one hand. With the other, he reaches up and feels above the radio panel for something he is, expects to be there. And it is one of the distinctive scramble transceivers. And then he has the same Eagle Nest Falcon. And then uh, it, it says that then they go to the, the control tower. And in the control tower, they hear the garbled alien sound. Now, why would they hear that? Because they don't have the walkie. No, talkie. they shouldn't hear that. I mean, maybe, maybe, um, maybe Barnes still had the walkie-talkie next to him. Mm. I don't know. And then, it, yeah, or I mean, you know, they're tuned into all the different frequencies to try and catch something. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Barnes is pretty smart, <laughs> you know. That's true. Not as smart as Marvin, but he's still pretty smart. <laughs> Uh, my my son, as we watched this, he he said that guy's the smartest guy in the movie. He was referring to Barnes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, then it goes back to the to the church. Stewart says the same thing. We hear Esperanza's voice, and then it says, "Pull back." McLean listens, grinning. He takes the airport map from his pocket, hands it to Marvin. 
McLean says, Marvin, you show me a shortcut to runway 15, and you got yourself a liner for that coach. And, you know, the, the rest of it's the same. Um, I, I think it's it's much better in the movie. You know, that it's uh, it's crisper the way that they that, that they give that there. Sure. You know. All right. So every Tuesday we have a segment called Disaster Tuesday, where one of the things that I try to do here is to, you know, highlight some unfortunate uh, air, aircraft disasters that have happened uh, over the years. And I somehow try and find something that's that's uh, connected or related to uh, my guest. So what I did here was I actually found that there was a uh, plane crash that happened uh, not far from where you live. And uh, it happened uh, near uh, Silver Plum or Silver Plume. Silver Plume, yes. Is, Is that relatively close to where you are? That's up in the mountains a little bit. Yeah. Um, I usually when you hear names that are silver something, there's there's several small communities that have that type of a name. Uh, you know, those are mountain communities because that's where they were mining for silver. OK, that makes sense. Do, do you know of any uh, famous or I don't know if famous is the right word. Do you know of any plane crashes that that uh, that that happened in that area that they that people talk about that happened in silver? plumes? Yes. Uh, in okay, I'll, in 1970, it happened on October 2nd, 1970. I was gonna say, oh, yes, yes, wait, I think I, mm, all right, I'm very vague on this, but actually, just a few months ago, I was at we have a great museum here, um, called the Wings Over the Rockies Museum, which is an old airplane hangar from, um, um, oh, shoot, what's the name of the Air Force Base? I'm forgetting it right now, but anyway, no, no Air space is closed. <laughs> no, that's down in Colorado Springs. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Buckley, Buckley Air Force Base. No, Buckley's the one that's still open. Anyway, there's an old Air Force Base <laughs> in Denver, and the hangars are still there. And one of them has been turned into this great museum called the Wings Over the Rockies. And there's all these old planes that are there that you can go and take a look at and there was a display up about i'm pretty sure this incident you're talking about because a plane that was leaving from denver i think i forget where they were heading and they had trouble and they crashed in the mountains and it was a small plane um but um you know they dispatched these rescue crews you know that you know had to you know use all this kind of winter equipment to get to where it goes it was a very difficult and intricate thing uh i hope we're talking about the same incident and there was like i think only one fatality out of no. the thing because this rescue no. effort was so <laughs> no is this some this is no I don't, I don't know if it's I'm different i just know that that uh that there were a lot more fatalities here um could it be that that, that you're talking okay, about okay. lowry could it be lowry air force base lowry there, yes no. yes that's what that's right, the okay one, yes all right so this this actually was a plane that, that had 37 passengers on it, a uh, crew of three, uh, 37 passengers and a crew of three. So there were a total of 40, 29 people were killed at the scene and two later died of their injuries. Okay. Um, why is this crash uh, somewhat uh, famous? It's because it was carrying the 1970 Wichita State Shockers football team. They were on their way. Oh, they were on their okay. way to Logan, Utah for a game against Utah State. And uh, due to pilot error, including poor fl- flight 
poor in-flight decisions and inadequate pre-flight planning, um, the, the the plane crashed. Okay, they they uh, they they took off and headed west to a for a stopover in Denver at Stapleton Airport, and then they were supposed to continue on to Logan Airport in northern Utah. Uh, they had two planes that were carrying the, this team, uh, and they called them uh, Gold and Black because those were the the, the school colors. Um, Gold, the aircraft that actually crashed, was carrying the starting players, the head coach, the athletic directors, their wives, other administrators, boosters, and family members. And then the black, uh, the, the plane that was designated as black, had the reserve players, the assistant coaches, and the other support personnel. So the, all, they, they were all uh, saved. Uh, basically, what happened was is the plane was, was flying uh, unusually low towards the Continental Divide. And they, uh, when it was flying past Clear Creek Valley, Valley, it became trapped in a box canyon and was unable to climb above the mountain ridges mm -hmm. surrounding it on three sides. And at 1.14 p.m. Uh, mountain time, uh, they struck tees, uh, trees on the east slope of Mount uh, Trelees. Trelees? Um, and they, they were 1,600 feet below the summit, and they ended up crashing there. Yeah, so as I said, unfortunately, uh, you know, 29 people were killed in it. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a different incident than the one I was thinking of. I was just pulling some stuff up here, and yeah, this is this is different because the display I saw at this museum was basically celebrating the rescue efforts and stuff. So, well, there um, was a, I'm sure there was a but rescue. Yeah, no, here, look at. But, uh, oh yeah, no. Yeah, but uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, silver. Silver Plume, where where this happened nearby, Silver Plume is a very tiny place. Um, it's right along I-70. You know, basically, if you drive west out of Denver, it's I-70 that goes into the mountains. Silver Plume is the west edge of. There's a a great attraction that uh, I encourage people who visit the Denver area to visit called the um, the Georgetown Loop uh, Railroad. And it's a great old steam engine thing, and you get on it at Georgetown, and it takes you to Silver Plume and oh, back. Wow. So, yeah, and uh, I mean, this was six weeks before the uh, Marshall University team uh, crashed in uh, Huntington. You know, just a few weeks later, in the the same year, hmm. and the NCAA actually allowed them to use freshman players to fill out the squad uh, in order to be able to to continue the the season for 1970. Hmm. Yeah, very tragic. Um, all right, so uh, Todd, you want to once again tell people uh, where they can find uh, Todd Liebenau? Well, of course, my podcast is called The Forgotten Filmcast. You can find that on all the places you find your podcasts. The blog is called Forgotten Films. It's at ForgottenFilmcast.wordpress.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Forgotten Films. It's films with a Z. All right. And finding me is very simple. Just do a quick search for Move Around Minute. You can find me on my website, movearoundminute.com. You can find me on Facebook. And you can find me on Twitter. So until tomorrow, yippee ki -yay, Mr. Falcon. yippee ki -yay. If you're fond of sand dunes and salty air, quaint little villages, 